I could see it. I was probably at 14,000 feet, and there were, um, you know, I could see the flames below and smoke starting to rise. And uh, I could also see there were three paragliders that were basically right over the, the flames. I'm like, oh my God, they, these guys are getting getting smoked there. The second line is related to our ego, making the will to achieve the original flight goal such a huge factor that it blinds the pilot from a rational analysis of the situation. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Thank you, Michelle, and thank you for joining us for this episode. Also, a big thank you to our Patreon pilots that help us keep things moving here so we can continue to bring you more great soaring content. Like this episode you are about to hear, and recently, I had the privilege to catch up with Clemens Schreipek about his recent experience competing at the 18-meter nationals in Nephi, Utah. He talked about the crazy transitions in terrain there, strong thermals, dealing with TFRs because there's actually a wildfire going on. Nephi is a majestic place to fly. I had a lot of fun talking to him about his experiences while learning a lot as well. Also on this episode, our friend Sergio, the Soaring Master, is back with another lesson to be learned. This one is focused on the mental battle we go through before landing out. But before we get to all that, I have some exciting news, especially for you Condor pilots out there. We are glad to have our sponsor, Just Soaring, back with a couple of updates about their Glider Sim Pro, a sailplane simulator cockpit for Condor Soaring. Their website is all new and now has a couple of videos to look at updated product pictures and specs, and even a facts section to help answer some of your questions. If you follow the Soaring Academy on Instagram, you've probably seen one of the first production units in operation there at Crystal Airport, and so far it's a big hit with their students and instructors. Just Soaring is also proud to be the lead sponsor of the first ever FAI-sanctioned eSports glider race. That's right, the Sailplane World Grand Prix is coming in September, the winning pilot gets a Glider Sim Pro. You'll be seeing lots more of their Glider Sim rigs across the U.S. and the rest of the world in the coming months. So check them out at JustSoaring.com on the web or Just.Soaring on Instagram. Well, let's get to our guest pilot. Clemens, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah. Hi, Jock. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, we have been privileged to have you on a few times, but listeners, if they want to hear more of your soaring journey that started back a few years, they can go back to episode 14, and that one's titled Austria and the Alps. You know, the team here and I at Soaring the Sky, we've been keeping up with your adventures at the 18-meter nationals there, Nephi. So we did want to reach out to you again and get all those details. And originally, I wanted to start the interview with some top-level takeaways from that week there in E540, but then decided maybe we should just dive right into some of those more specific questions that we came up with in no particular order, and then maybe towards the end of, of the segment, we could uh, give you a chance to fill in any blanks and just summarize your journey at the event, and of course, thank some of those organizers, if you like, and competitors. Oh, sure. Go ahead. The race was held in Utah which, of course, shares many soaring terrain and weather characteristics with lots of other western states like California, you know, Arizona, Colorado, 
New Mexico, and so on. So how much of a factor or advantage is it for pilots with real mountain or desert soaring background compared to maybe those East Coast pilots like myself that just don't have as much soaring time out West? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe I should preface this with uh, the fact that almost my entire soaring is in the mountains. And so I, I really can't speak uh, very well for flatland pilots. Uh, but um, I would say that most of the soaring in Nephi specifically is thermal soaring. And so anyone who's a flatland pilot obviously is a thermal pilot because that's basically all they have. And, and most, of the th- most of the soaring in Nephi is, is thermal. So, I mean, there are some things that are different um, and specific, but I wouldn't say, you know, just because somebody comes from the flatland, uh, they shouldn't be concerned about going to Nephi. Nephi is actually fairly, uh, a fairly accessible uh, site. Uh, but but there's a few things that are different. So for example, the uh, the thermals are stronger and they they go higher, uh, way higher, right? So and and because they're stronger, you have to be more selective in what you take and what you don't take. Uh, so you can really lose a race uh, very quickly if you uh, make too many turns in in weak stuff. So two or three knot lift is not going to cut it when there is seven to ten knots available, or twelve knots, or fourteen knots, or even more available elsewhere. Uh, I would say then also I would say convergence uh, plays a bigger role. Uh, and that is something that is probably not common and not very uh, flatland people are not super familiar with. And convergence lines are frequent and they're pretty strong. And, and if they're really strong, you can go straight for a long, long time uh, without making any turns. And if you look at the clouds and where the convergence is and where the lift is relative to the clouds, if the clouds are convergence indicated, uh, you will, uh, the way to look for the lift is a little different than it would be in the flatland. So um, not reading convergence lines uh, is, is really helpful and important, um, but the only way to gain experience in doing it is to go and try and, and figure it out. And uh, I would say, you know, do it. Um, there, you know, there, there's an intimidation factor, I think, maybe for some people um, in Nephi, uh, or in mountain sites in general. But I think that intimidation fact in Nephi is a little bit more modest than it would be, for example, in, in Colorado. So where we fly in, in Boulder, it's, uh, it's even more technical and, uh, and forbidding the terrain than it is in Nephi. Nephi is, has big valleys and wide valleys, and there's, there's lots of fields and there's lots of airports. And um, especially if somebody comes out for, the, for a regional competition as opposed to the nationals, they will keep everybody pretty close to landable areas. So I would say don't don't be afraid of that. And then, um, you know, terrain transitions, that's probably something that is pretty new for people who come from, from flatlands. I mean, if you fly in the flatlands, everything looks the same. Now you've got mountain ranges and the mountain ranges, they're separating the weather systems and the air masses, and you will find different air masses behind each mountain range. And so you have to kind of switch gears uh, as you go from one air mass to another air mass. Uh, and you've got these terrain transitions where you have to go over mountains or mountain ranges. And sometimes you have to assess whether you can make it across the mountains or not. And, yeah. and that, that takes a little bit of, uh, of, uh, of experience. I'd actually suggest that if, if anyone is flying in Condor, that is a great tool uh, to figure out those terrain transitions because they can, they can be intimidating. So I mean, those are some of the things that are that are different. But I wouldn't I wouldn't say you know it's it's not an intimidating site overall. A good place to 
learn how to fly in the West, it sounds like. I mean, you have a lot of options. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If, 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 you're, fir if you're first time in the mountains, Nifa is actually a great place to, to practice. Uh, much, much easier than, than Boulder, for example. So how do you guys deal with overdevelopment during a task? And what are the risk rewards for maybe pushing into overdevelopment or close to overdevelopment conditions? And whenever I see YouTube or social media posts, of a pilot looking at a big overdevelopment in front of them on their task, it always freaks me out a little bit. And I wonder, what does it <laughs> feel like? Well, I mean, there's overdevelopment and overdevelopment. Uh, overdevelop overdevelopment per se isn't bad, right? Overdevelopment basically just means there's gonna there's a lot of clouds, and um, and if you're in the flatlands and there is a lot of clouds, the clouds will shield the sun and the shut the and you know, have a big, big risk that the thermals will just shut down. Uh, I think what you're talking about is probably more the kind of overdevelopment that that generates, um, you know, storms, uh, and that's can, that can be intimidating. So I think it's important to understand what is causing the overdevelopment, uh, and then it's also important to understand is is there a risk of thunderstorms, and and that has less to do with how much of the sky is covered, but more in terms of how, how much vertical development is there. So if you see the clouds billowing up really, really high and tall into the sky, that's when you have to be really concerned because that's, that's a sure sign that you get, you get thunderstorms uh, that, are, that are brewing. Um, but overdevelopment in, it, in and of itself is not necessarily bad. So let's say, you know, for example, you can get uh, convergence-induced overdevelopment along the, the Wasatch Plateau. So that's in Nephi, you got mountain ranges, and one of those mountain ranges that are north-south range is the, is the Wasatch Plateau. And, and there is that, that plateau develops very quickly. Um, but if there is an inversion layer on top of the plateau, so the clouds won't go super high, uh, they won't go high vertical. They they can spread out pretty quick, but you can still get under that overdevelopment. You can get a lot of lift uh, along the the edge of the plateau, even if the sky is completely uh, overdeveloped. So I think it's it's more important to distinguish: is this something where you have to be concerned about safety? So thunderstorms obviously is is when you have to be concerned about safety, or is it is it is it just overdevelopment that is going to block the could, could block the, the thermal activity. Um, but, you know, you can, you can find great lift under, under very heavily developed skies and it works really well. Uh, and on the other hand, you can have, like we had a contest day out there uh, during the nationals, I think on the, on the first day, um, uh, I was really late to get going um, because it took me too long to climb out. So I, I started behind everybody else and, and, and there was a big, thunderstorm was developing uh, to the south side so the to the in, in the first turn area I saw the whole gaggle in front of me they, they went into uh, they went between two rain shafts so it was raining on the left and on the right and they just went straight in and and uh, you know they were probably just early enough to still do it uh, but when I when I got there uh, <laughs> it looked it, it looked too risky to me so I, I just basically nicked that one turn area. Uh, and I knew that it was costing me uh, because the you know there was certainly strong lift even though it was completely overdeveloped and, and dark, but I was certain there was going to be strong lift. But I was just too afraid of, of storms, um, and and that's why I, you know I only sort of nicked that turn area and went towards the next one, even though the conditions there were were worse. 
but um, in this case, it was timing that really made the difference. So I think it's it's also important to to really try and start to understand the sky, read the sky, and figure out what is going to happen in the next five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, twenty minutes, uh, because you know this this whole thing of, of seeing what will happen or what is likely going to happen that is going to uh, help you make the right the right decisions. And so, uh, yeah, a safe decision. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, uh, safety obviously has to be uh, has to be uh, the number one uh, consideration, and uh, always uh, that doesn't matter whether you're racing or not. Right. Speaking of weather, what weather products do you lean into most? And if you use several different ones, which ones do you think are more accurate for which types of lift or or conditions? I mean, some people say sky side is better in predicting convergent conditions, while maybe XC skies is better for looking at the thermal tops and boundary shear, and any number of those other comparisons of what these and other weather products do best or not quite as well. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I wouldn't say one is necessarily better than the other. Uh, first, I think it's important to understand the, the big picture of what's going on. Uh, so I think what's useful to first, before you even dive into any particular weather model, uh, it's good to know, you know, why, what is what is going on? Where, where the are there cold fronts? Are there whether you know where the the pressure systems? Uh, what's the you know how much water vapor is in the air? So um, I think those are important things. And then you can look at um, so, so you understand the big picture of what what is the overall weather situation. Um, and then you can look into the forecasts. And uh, I think the SkySide forecast is, uh, is certainly, the e- in my mind, it's the easiest to use forecast. So it's, it's really, it's very easy to use. It's highly visual. Uh, I think uh, Matt Scott did a great job with it. Uh, also having an open API, so it integrates with a lot of uh, uh, flight computer systems. So I downloaded on my on my flight computer and I have the weather in the cockpit, at least the forecast weather in the cockpit. But uh, for example, for convergence, it's super important, super useful, especially if the day is blue. I think I think SkySet is a is a very useful tool. Um, XC Skies is a, is a great product, but the, the thing with XC Skies is actually XC Skies is like six products because you got six different weather weather models uh, in XC Skies, and so you can go and. Uh, look at use XC skies. You can you can pick which weather model you want to look at, and 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 the problem is the more weather models you're going to look at, the more confused you're likely going to get. At least that's what happened to me. I also right. I also used <laughs> to have um, you know top media um, as well, uh, and and I kind of you know it's easy to get frustrated by if you have eight different weather models uh, that you have available to you and. And you look at all of them, and each of them tells you something differently. Then at the end, you're more confused than you were without. You know, then it's sometimes better to just look at the sky instead of yeah. <laughs> looking at, at weather forecasts. <laughs> but um, uh, so I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the best weather model is the one that you're most familiar with and that you're used to, and that you have a longer term comparison to. Uh, so you know, is it is it more optimistic or is it more pessimistic? Uh, Skyset tends to be a little on the optimistic side, uh, or maybe they just assume that everyone is a is a world class uh, soaring pilot, and I just can't live up to <laughs> to Matthew Scott's standards. But yeah. but uh, uh, you know, if you compare what you can, what the Skyset thinks you can do, and what you know you can do, the comparison is is a, is a helpful comparison. Right. Uh, and uh, you, if you have one weather model and weather forecasting system that you're really familiar with, that is probably your best one. 
So we saw um, here the team, and I saw the blue hole that you had on your blog post. So can you talk about that for a minute? Well, a blue hole. I mean, uh, basically what I refer to as a, as a blue hole, and I don't, I don't know if there's another uh, another definition uh, for that, but uh, I, I just use the term blue hole to describe an area where there are no cumulus clouds. So where basically the sky is blue. So let's say you're flying along a beautiful line of, of cues um, and, uh, you know, you get great lift from one cloud to the next cloud to the next cloud. And suddenly, you, you, you know, your task takes you into an area where there's 30 miles, 40 miles of blue sky in front of you. Uh, and so that's what I refer to as a, as a blue hole, as a, an area without cues. Uh, and then the question is, you know, what does it mean, right? We all know that cumulus clouds indicate lift or likely lift. And uh, if you then have an area without clouds, does that mean that there is no lift? And uh, I would say, well, not necessarily. Uh, it, it depends on what causes the area to be blue. Uh, but it's definitely a good idea to be to be cautious when you when you get to an area uh, that is blue. You probably have heard of the term uh, downshifting. So you basically, um, when you see the if sky is, is blue ahead, then you know it's a good idea to tank up on the one of the, the, the last clouds that you can find, get up to as high as you can get. Uh, and then um, you know fly into the blue uh, a little cautiously so so don't don't speed up but but slow down and fly closer to your base glide ratio uh, and uh, and see what what happens uh, and you might find that there is still good lift uh, and it's just uh, maybe it's a little bit lower because there's an inversion that is preventing the the clouds from developing um, or maybe there is a, even a, you might have a convergence line and just the air is drier in front of you and the convergence goes right through the blue hole area but there are no cloud indicators because it's a drier air mass so there's there's all kinds of reasons uh, you, you might also have a blue hole where the air is just sinking so we have this a lot in colorado you know out into the plains where you got thermals developing over the mountains and those thermals are sucking in air from the plains, uh, and then the air from the mountains gets pushed out over the plains, and there it starts, there it sinks down again. So, on a typical summer day here in Colorado, you have got sinking, uh, sinking air mass out of the plains between here and maybe 25, 30 miles uh, away from the mountains. And that area really is not not very good. So you don't want to if you fly in there and you have a turn point in there, you, you better have enough altitude to make it make it there and make it back yeah. to the lift because otherwise you will be <laughs> you will be landing. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like it might get a little scary. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just uh, I mean, I've had these turn points where I've had turn points that were uh, 20 miles away from the last area of lift and you had to get to the turn point and come back and uh and you just in that case if you the advantage of flying out in the west is sometimes you can climb so high that you can glide 20 miles into the blue and fly the 20 miles back to where the lift is and you don't need any lift for 40 miles if you're high enough right yeah uh, so so uh, but a blue hole itself isn't scary it's just it's just a, a reason to be cautious uh that there might not be as much lift as you would hope yeah i do want to thank our longtime sponsor of the show we are so honored to have the support of the southern california soaring academy they are doing meaningful and almost monthly now 
nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also young people in STEM programs at their top-notch Gliderport facility located just outside of Los Angeles there in the high desert of Southern California. They also have a fantastic flight school there, and they are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you'd like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, please pop over to the website at soaringacademy.org or check them out on Instagram at Soaring Academy. You know, this time of year, especially here in the United States, you know, we see uh, a lot of wildfires, especially out west. But have you ever had a TFR for a wildfire announced mid-race? And how do organizers and pilots handle a situation like that? If not, during a race, how about while you're on a long personal task back in Colorado? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's wildfire starting, unfortunately. This, I mean, if you look at the at Skyvec, the Skyvec is a great tool to see where all the TFRs are. And, um, you know, if you look out right now, look out at the West, it's, it's, it's all, you know, there's wildfires and wildfire TFRs all over the place. So uh, we actually had that happen in Nephi. So there was a contest day when a fire started uh, midway uh, during the contest day. And, uh, and in fact, the first, uh, the first leg uh, of our task was right through the area of where the fire started. Um, oh, wow. And uh, unfortunately, we, you know, by the time it actually started right as we were going through that area and, and I, I could see it, I was probably at 14,000 feet and there were, um, you know, I could see the flames below and smoke starting to rise. And uh, I could also see there were three paragliders that were basically right over the, the flames. I'm like, oh, my oh, God, wow. these guys are getting getting smoked there. Yeah, um, and, and and in the morning we checked and there was no TFR, right? So uh, I mean, there, there there was actually really no alternative but to uh, but to keep going. Um, uh, I mean, I knew that. I mean, we, when these fire TFRs happen, they always get a ceiling, uh, so a, a maximum altitude because the firefighters they all fly pretty close to the fire, right? They, they're not gonna yeah. dump. They're not gonna dumping water from eighteen thousand feet, so right. uh, typically the, the the typically those ceilings tend to be at eleven thousand, twelve thousand, maybe thirteen thousand feet, and uh, so I was at fourteen thousand feet. So I thought even if even if a TFR was being declared, I'm gonna be high enough uh, flying over it. Um, except of course, if it's a contest, the issue in a contest is you're not allowed to fly over any fire TFR. Uh, in, in U.S. contests. So if there is a TFR, you're not allowed to fly over it at any altitude. Even if the TFR okay. is only to 14,000, the rules say you can't fly over it. Oh, wow. But also the rules don't say what to do uh, if the TFR is declared mid-flight because obviously you couldn't know it before yeah. you take off, right? right. And so, so there's really no way. I don't think there's, this is addressed in the rules because we talked about this uh, on the next day. Uh, I mean, what happened in this case is that the fire started, but the TFR wasn't declared until a few hours after that. So we didn't have an airspace issue. Everybody who flew through the area, regardless of altitude, they were all fine because there was no TFR by the time they flew through the area. Uh, but then we talked about what happens if that happens again, right? And, and the TFR is declared. And actually, the organizers, they talked to the... Uh, people who are doing the firefighting, uh, I don't know exactly who they talked to, but, uh, and they gave them the, um, 
they gave them the contest frequency. So uh, they basically struck a deal that if a TFR is declared mid-flight, the fire department, the, the firefighters, they could make an announcement directly on the contest frequency. And as soon as that announcement was made, we would not be allowed to fly through that area. Oh, nice. Um, fortunately, that never happened, right? So it, it didn't happen during the during the contest that we, we didn't have another fire and the one that started they fortunately they got it out after three days it was pretty oh, yeah. pretty small pretty small fire uh, but yeah that that happens and uh, I mean in my own flying when I fly in Colorado if I see a fire and there's no fire TFR I just I just stay far away from from the yeah. area of the fire uh, I just I just won't fly uh, won't fly through it I mean it's also you, you, the last thing you want to do when firefighters are starting to fight a fire is you would you don't want to be a you don't want to be a pain for them. You want to help them and get out of their yeah, way. Absolutely. Well, that was a great idea that you guys gave them the frequencies so they could let you know. Yeah, I mean, they, basically that was the best we could do under <laughs> the circumstances. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not a competition pilot myself, but you know, often I wonder how important is physical conditioning. For these marathon races i mean you guys are waking up pretty early you're waiting and then a lot of times you're going to be sitting there in the heat for a little bit and you're flying for hours and then of course you have events and maybe some adult beverages at night i mean how do you do all that yeah i mean it's it's definitely an endurance event and i i flew you know in my case was even worse because i flew the 20 meter um, multi-seat nationals in Montague and then I had three days uh, where I had to fly back to Colorado get my glider trailer my glider back out to Nephi and then uh, fly another 10-day event so I had one 10-day oh, wow. event in Montague and then followed by another 10-day event in, in Nephi oh, uh, so it was definitely <laughs> an endurance uh, an endurance event um, I mean soaring is not a very physical sport um, uh, but but obviously it takes a lot of concentration, and um, uh, our our brain actually this is the the one organ in our body that consumes the most energy is our brain, and so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, <laughs> there's a lot of energy that's required, um, and it's definitely an endurance event. So it's it's um, uh, I mean you you're trying to. Um, fly as well as possible, but uh, you also have to constantly, in a contest, constantly have to pay attention to all the other gliders, and that adds to the to the workload. Right? In in a normal, if I go soaring on a weekend and there's maybe three, four, five other gliders around, and each flies their own task, uh, I mean the the workload of watching for other for other people is fairly modest because you, you you look at the farm, you know where they are, and they tell you on the radio where they are, and you know nobody's around for forty miles, so you don't have to look out like crazy. But if there's thirty other gliders that you're flying with in the same thermal, uh, that takes a lot of workload, and so I think that all adds to this, um, you know, to the to the workload. But so. Physical conditioning, I mean, I, I don't know. I think some people say it's hugely important. Uh, I personally don't know. I'm, I'm glad that I have a, a, a reasonable endurance uh, fitness level. I used to be, uh, you know, I used to do a lot of ultra cycling. I used to do ultra marathons. Uh, I still do long trail runs and, and long hikes in the mountains. And uh, I, But I was still very happy to get uh, our two rest days that we got during yeah. the event because <laughs> I was I was totally exhausted. Uh, I mean, oh, if man. three days of 
three days of flying under these conditions. I was uh, after three consecutive days, I was totally exhausted. I'm like, can we please wow. have a day when it <laughs> when it rains? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> please so, rain, please. <laughs> but but you know, you, you only want one day of rain, and then you want it. You want it good. Right. And in terms yeah. of in terms of drinks, I mean, I don't, I don't. Uh, you know, I, I really think uh, alcohol is not good for decision making. So yeah. I, I I only do like maybe not one usually. beer, one beer at <laughs> one beer at night. That that doesn't yeah. do much harm, but no. I definitely wouldn't get drunk. So that would not be yeah, a good idea. right. And that wouldn't work out so good. Yeah. I, I think a lot of lower hour pilots, without much cross country experience, you know, they all ran into situations where they might be booming 10 plus not lift right but then this massive sinkholes are there or large areas of opposite sink that just makes them really nervous about stretching beyond their comfort zone what thoughts do you have to share with pilots like that to make less nervous maybe or just prepared to handle those situations or conditions um i mean the, the you you have um I mean, are you talking about people who are interested in, in, in you know, who have no cross-country experience? Or are you talking about contest flying? You're talking about uh, just just 10 knot lift and, and big sink. Uh, because, I mean, if you're, if you're um, I mean, I, I, let's talk about contest flying. So I don't want to, maybe, maybe flying a nationals contest is not the first good thing for anyone with no cross-country experience, uh, but I don't think that happens anyway, right? So, right. Um, but I would I would encourage anyone to fly contests. I think that's especially regional contests. Uh, in some ways, that is actually easier and more accessible than uh, than flying cross-country at your home airport. Uh, I mean, there is a there's a somebody setting a task for you and there's a weather person who really knows the stuff and they give you a really good weather briefing you don't have to figure it out all, all on your own uh, there's a retrieve office so if you have to land out there's a system in place to for people to come and get you uh, so there's there's a lot of um, uh, support that is available that is not not normally available. So I would encourage anyone, even if they have relatively little cross country experience. But I mean, obviously you should you should have some. Yeah. Um, uh, you should have some cross country experience to fly contests. And, and I, the, the ten knot lift and the sink kind of thing. I mean, that is a classic. If you have ten knot lift, there will be sink. Oh and yeah. If you have mountains, if you have mountains, there will be sink too. Yep. Right. So. Um, and especially if there's wind, wind is actually more uh, wind and mountains are, are more problematic than just lift and mountains yeah. uh, on, a, on a pure thermal day. And you have 10 knot lift. You're not going to find 10 knot sink that easily unless it's, uh, you know, uh, you're close to thunderstorms. Then, of course, all bets are off. Yeah. Um, but if you have mountains and you have strong wind, well, you can get 20 knots of lift and you can get 20 knots of sink uh, and they can be very, very close together. Uh, and that is really scary. So uh, I would say to anyone with little cross country experience, do not fly in mountains with a lot of winds. That's a right. like, that's a real recipe for <laughs> for disaster. But but otherwise, I wouldn't. I would say you know if you if you're just looking to gain cross country experience, um, flying a contest is, is a regional contest is is a good idea. But also if you just want to get uh, out of your I think getting out of your comfort zone uh, at the beginning, I think that is important. And you can do this at your home airport. And I think the best way to do that is to do simple task flying. You set yourself some tasks, start with tasks that stay within glide range of your airport. 
uh, you said some, you know, there's there's actually a program, it's called Proving Grounds. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this, Chuck, but... Yeah, yeah, we a, actually uh, talked to him a little bit on the podcast, yeah. Uh, to, to Patrick. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. that's awesome. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I would suggest, you know, if your club has a Proving Grounds program, um, and I've set one up for, with some, you know, with help from other people at our club, uh, we've set up some one up for the Soaring Society of Boulder, um, and it's really helpful to the people who are uh, trying to gain cross-country experience because we we set specifically tasks that are accessible and that you know that keep people out of dangerous zones and uh, that uh, the first tasks are set such such that they can be flown uh, within glide range of the airport. Um, and uh, so if your club has that, do that program. If your club doesn't have that program, look it up anyway and see what tasks typically get set uh, on a Proving Grounds program. Set up your own tasks like that. And it's it's pretty straightforward. I mean, you, you know how far you can glide to the airport. Uh, set some tasks and fly those tasks because once you fly tasks, you're gaining the confidence that you can make it from one turn point to the next turn point to the next turn point. And make, you know, you can make a short task and fly it five times in a row. Uh, and, and you gain a lot of confidence that you can fly where the task tells you to fly as opposed to where, uh, you know, where the sky looks good. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and so once once you can do that, uh, then it's it's easy to go, and then you gradually increase it, right? From from, and as you as you do that, you learn a lot about observing the clouds, reading the clouds, reading the weather, um, uh, understanding the glide performance of your glider, and and having confidence in looking ahead and knowing, you know, can I glide that far or can I not glide that far? You don't even have to have, you know, a flight computer telling you that. It's actually better if you can judge it. Based on your own, um, uh, based on your own visual references and based on your own experience, than than relying on, on technology. Technology can, can can especially in this case can mislead you uh, big time. So, so don't just trust your flight computer. Trust your own uh, your your own experience and push yourself. You know, each flight you can do something that is a little bit harder than you've done before. Um, you never have to take any safety risks. Uh, learn to distinguish between safety risks and sporting risks. Uh, sporting risk is just the risk of landing out in a safe place, uh, and that's totally acceptable. And you have to get familiar with that. Um, but uh, don't ever take safety risks. Yeah, absolutely. Some great advice there, Clemens. How much does Florum data and the potential presence of other gliders in your planned flight path affect or not affect what you're doing during the task? Are there times where you just want to steer clear of traffic for no other reason than you think there might be collision possibilities? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm probably not the, I don't have that much contest experience to, um, uh, so I'm not sure my answer is completely representative of everybody else. And also my technology isn't that great in my glider. Uh, I have a farm view screen uh, that's pretty small. Uh, and it tells me, you know, it's it's a great tool for collision avoidance. So if there is somebody on collision course, I know where they are and, and uh, you know, uh, I, I know how to stay clear of them. Um, right. But it, it doesn't give me a lot of uh, the, the really the, the good technology uh, that helps you in the contest is the technology where you have a complete map with everybody where they are at 
and uh, where, where they're heading and what their climb rate is, what their current climb rate is. And, and so, uh, but I don't have that, <laughs> have that in my glider. So I found that that was actually a big shortcoming uh, to use it tactically. So as an advantage, yeah. so some people can tactically use this. Uh, I, I didn't use it tactically. I, I actually did what you're describing. I did, um, especially in the priest, pre-start in the pre-start area i oftentimes went away from everybody unfortunately we had there was a lot of lift in nephi on most days so you could you could find your basically your own cloud yeah <laughs> and, right. and park, park yourself under your it's, you know we had times where we had to wait for you know i was in the air and we had to wait two hours before the whole fleet was launched and the task oh, opened. Wow. So you basically on weird days where I was flying around for two hours. Sometimes I flew more than 200 kilometers before the task started. Oh my goodness. You're just (laughs) hanging out. (laughs) You're just hanging out. Yeah. And then, but I was trying to go my own ways and and stay away from everybody else to to conserve energy. Um, But uh, I think if, I think the people who are really proficient at it and who have the right technology, they're using this very effectively as a, as a basically a, a competitive intelligence tool and they keep keep tabs on you know the best pilots and where they are at and how, how fast they're climbing and they're trying to follow them i actually tried to fly my own races and <laughs> for the most yeah. part stayed away from 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 the big from the big goggles but you know that's why i didn't win the race so <laughs> be, be, that's, not, that's not the reason but uh, it's 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 one of the contributing factors we noticed that the final results sheet was populated by a lot of ASG29s and JS3s, even with the handicap system that is used. Is there an inherent advantage to certain types of ships in these competitions over others, or does it just happen that the best pilots find their way into the 29 and the JS3? Um, I mean, it's a bit of both, uh, but but first, uh, just to clarify, there, there, uh, this is one of the few contests where there was no handicap system. So oh, okay. uh, you have at the at the eighteen meter nationals, uh, you basically have you know you, your requirement is you have an eighteen meter glider right. and it can't be it can't be heavier than six hundred kilograms, okay, uh, or thirteen hundred twenty three pounds. Um, but there's but there's no handicap being used, so all. Um, you know, uh, whatever you turn up with. So, so is there an advantage to the gliders? I think there is an advantage to the, to the, to, to gliders, but it's, it's less the glider itself. It's mostly the wing loading, uh, that matters the most wing and wing loading is essentially the, uh, you know, it's the, basically the, the, the weights divided by the wing area. Um, and so if you have higher wing loading, so, so basically higher, uh, uh, pounds per square feet, square foot, um, that will uh, that will make the glider go faster uh, for the same altitude loss, and and so uh, the the gliders like the GS3 and the AS33, which is actually the successor to the 29, uh, there was only one there, and I think it had uh, it had some issues. The GS3s they had the, they have the highest wing loading. If it's 60 kilograms, I don't know what it, uh, per square meter. I'm not sure what that translates in in pounds. Per square foot, but uh, the JS threes have the highest wing loading, and that does give them an advantage in the in in the glide performance on the uh, on the on the runs. And and the stronger the conditions are, the stronger that advantage becomes. If the conditions, uh, because it, it really only helps if you're going really fast. Uh, if you're going at moderate speeds, it makes barely any difference. Uh, but once you go, you know, really fast, hundred knots, hundred ten knots, hundred twenty knots, right. 
uh, it, it makes a big difference. And we had outstanding weather at this contest. I mean, the, the, the thermal strength was was, uh, yeah, was off the charts and the uh, the cloud streets were were great. So you didn't have to th- you didn't have to turn much. I mean, the, there was race. I, I flew on some of the days I had less than uh, around ten percent thermal ink percentage for the for the whole flight. Wow! So, yeah, awesome. you're basically ninety percent of the time you're going straight, and whenever you're going straight, uh, then that but that's where you get an advantage if you have a, a glider that has a high wing loading, and so everyone was fully ballasted, right? So everybody had uh, water ballast on board and and up to the to the legal maximum. So we all had. Gliders weighing 1,323 pounds right. <laughs> every single day. Right. And, uh, and, uh, and so on, on, on those conditions, the, the, the best uh, gliders will have, the, will have an advantage. But it's also true that the best pilots um, will, you know, it's very likely that the best pilots have the best gliders. So um, yeah. I'm actually trying to do some, some deep, deep dive analysis into, into my into my races in, in Nephi and um, I'm going to try and see if I can figure out how much, how much is the glider and how much is the pilot, but uh, I know it's yeah, both. Right. Yeah. I know. I know it's both. What's the most scenic or epic visual memory you have from Nephi during this contest? I mean, there is so much majestic, crazy, beautiful terrain out there. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's a super scenic uh, area to fly. And I mean, I'm, I'm spoiled, of course, because uh, <laughs> I normally fly in Colorado and that's, well, that's yeah. not exactly shabby, uh, shabby yeah. either. Uh, <laughs> but, True. Yeah. Uh, but I would, what I would say about Nephi that makes it, it special is that it's both a mountain and a desert site. Oh, yeah. and, and so you have this, this stark contrast bec- between lush green mountains on one side and then, you know, just a few miles away, you've got Mars-like landscape. Yeah. Uh, and it's that Contra- that contrast uh, that that's really you know makes it unforgettable so you you're flying over the mountain range and it's all you know you got uh, mountain meadows and and lakes and you know uh, people camping there and and having you know riding their atvs and hiking and like 10 minutes later you're you're out over the desert and uh it's it basically looks like mars and there is you, you look you look outside and you look for signs of roads or you know any sign of civilization towns uh, you you can't find anything uh all you see is desert uh and so it's (laughs) it's it's quite remarkable and then as you go further south i mean you can fly over areas that a lot of people are familiar with from from some of their most uh memorable vacations right i mean uh you've been to cyan canyon maybe or Mm -hmm. bryce canyon or um, Escalante staircase. I mean, those those are all areas that are accessible from from Nephi in the, in the glider. Uh, and there, there's a place that's called Wayne Wonderland. Uh, <laughs> that's what it is. It's a, it's a wonderland. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty. It's a pretty cool site. I want to take a minute and thank and tell you about our newest sponsor, Wings and Wheels. They've been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for more than thirty years now. They have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplanes and soaring supplies in the U.S. Nearly everything you find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. They're proud to be an exclusive American representative for HPH LTD, manufacturer of the finest quality sailplanes. The HPH Twin Shark is the newest 20-meter two-place sailplane on the market. 
Their staff has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean, you can bet a friendly voice will answer when you call. They're located in Eagle, Idaho, in their new commercial building with warehouse built to their specifications. And that was completed this year. Whether shipping domestic or international, your soaring-related supply list is covered. They would love for you to come and visit the next time you're in the Boise area. You can check them out on wingsandwheels.com. We're super excited to have them on the pod. Were there guys that were favorites going into the competition that, for whatever reason, just couldn't break the top ten? And what kinds of key factors typically happen that cause front runners or favorites maybe not hit the podium or even the top 10 is it almost always just strategic errors out of the course or maybe do you think it's often a racer is just having a crappy week or physically or emotionally just not quite at 100 percent um i mean i think the i think it's important first maybe to understand that the the soaring rules are such that you really can't win a contest uh, by by having a great day uh, but you can definitely lose an entire contest by having one really terrible day. So, so uh, you yeah. just cannot have one bad day because if you have one bad day, you basically your whole your whole contest is toast. And right. and so so yes, we did have some people who I would definitely have considered uh, contenders for the podium uh, who had one terrible day, and that was the end of the the whole contest for them. Uh, so I mean, yeah. for example, we had on, on the first count, and the, you know, it can be it can be a, a, a ridiculously small thing. So for example, we had on the first contest day, Noel Wade. He is a super nice guy, and he suddenly had a, a a flat tire as he was pushing out his glider to the grid. Oh man! And and you know, if you wow. if if you know how long it takes to take a you know replace a tube and uh, and the tire on the glider, I mean. Yeah. It's that it's a multi-hour task, and if yeah. you're already starting, you know, if the the, the fleet isn't launching until two p.m., uh, by the time you get back to your to your parking position, it's two thirty. Then you're starting to disassemble the whole thing. By the time you have it all fixed, yeah. it's maybe four thirty, and and it's um, too late to take off and and go after everybody because your that your day is yeah. over. So, and, and that happened to him, and and so it's really a shame because uh, that basically blew his whole contest you know wow i think you could could go back and calculate his performance if he had had a good first day he might have been on the podium um and uh, i mean there's other things that can happen i mean there is um you know if you have an airspace violation that would kill your contest so you know there was the contest we had we had uh, we flew close to tfrs right uh, we had one turn point in the restricted area. So if you if you fly into the restricted area, even if it's just for a few, you know, uh, for for twenty yards, <laughs> right. uh, you get you get zero points for the day and the penalty on top. So it, it would be better if you hadn't Ouch. started at all. Uh, and yeah. so <laughs> if that happens one day oh, to you, man. your whole contest <laughs> is toast for sure. Oh man, yeah. So uh, the 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 real the game the aim of the game is is consistency. Yeah. Yeah. If you could just zero zero in on maybe one or two factors, what is the magic sauce that maybe the top two or three guys had, you think, maybe that separated them and got them up on the podium? Yeah, no, I mean I think I just I just I think I just said it. I mean I think it is uh, you you have if you wanna win a contest at this level, you have to fly really well every single day. 
you don't you yeah. don't even have to win any one day. You don't not even one. I mean, it, the the winners did win days, right? I think Sean won probably two days. I think Sean yeah. Seaborn I think won two or three days. Um, but you don't have to win any day. Uh, you can be if you have if you're third every day, you're you're almost certain to win the whole contest. Uh, I mean, I right. can't prove this right now, but I could do the math and I can prove it. But I'm absolutely yeah. convinced. You, if you're if you're in the top three or in the, even in the top five every single day, you win the whole contest. So, so the most important thing is is uh, is you just have to be fly fast on every day uh, and good. You don't have to be the best um, and and to fly to be really fast. Basically, the the two magic the, the two you know major ingredients. Are number one, you gotta find the the you, you have to fly and lift and stay out of sync. So just figure out where exactly is the line to follow that is in the best area of lift and avoids the areas of sync. Uh, and the second is when you're thumbling, uh, you can only pick the best climbs and you have to get the highest climb rate. And if you do those two things, <laughs> you're gonna win the contest. Yeah. Yeah, consistency. Yeah, right? consistency in those two and th- in those two things, I would say that that's gonna yeah. win the contest. I mean, there's a, there's other things. Don't detour and do tactical things right, but but at the end of the day, it's those two things: fly and lift, and and get the best climbs. Overall, Clemens, did the week there live up to your expectations in terms of how the event was organized and how it was run? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean the. I mean, the, the main organizer, as you know, in NIFA is, is one of your guests, Bruno Vassel, uh, right. famous, yeah. famous YouTuber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, Bruno, Bruno has a lot of experience uh, for, for events like this, but he also has a tremendous passion for it. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and uh, I mean, the, the venue that uh, really he's also been instrumental in putting the venue together. Uh, that venue is, is outstanding for holding events like this. So you have this great hangar for the pilots meeting. You've got water faucets for every single tie down area. So everybody oh, wow. has has a water faucet to put, you know, a lot of water into their gliders. And th- that's a right. lot of water, right? If you have, yeah. if everybody's using 180 liters of water every single day. Oh, yeah. uh, to put into their gliders, that's a that's a lot of water that is being used. Yeah, uh, and then you have a, a, the city of Nephi super supportive. The mayor came out. I think he shows up at pretty much all of those Nephi events, uh, nice. and, and and expresses the support of the city. And uh, it's that's a really great. remarkable uh, place. Um, you know, I mean, and if there's anything that could have been better, I think it would be having more tow planes. Uh, sometimes, sometimes we just had. Uh, you know, sometimes we it just took a little long to get the whole fleet up and going, and and yeah. we could have made even better use of the of the soaring days if we had right. launched a fleet faster. But uh, I'd say that's a that's a minor thing. The the venue is great, the organization was great. Uh, you know, um, it, was, it was very nice. So with that question, I guess I want to ask you, what were your best and worst memories or moments from Nephi this year? It's hard to say. Uh, the I would say the, the the best moments maybe are, you know, when it comes to the flying, uh, when you are, when you're making a different decision from everybody else, and it turns out to be the right decision. Um, I mean, that's that's enormously satisfying, especially for someone like me who doesn't have the experience, right? So I mean, relatively limited experience still in terms of these high level contests. Um, so, for example, there was there was one day on our first leg, and 
uh, I was I was along you know along a cloud street and and I noticed immediately that that cloud street was was due to convergence and that the best lift would be upwind of the clouds and not under the dark stuff uh, that people usually follow and and so I saw you know the whole bunch of gliders ahead of me they were heading right. into the dark and I'm like I'm not doing that uh, I'm staying on the upwind side of the cloud. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, uh, along that street south, uh, you know, not only was I ahead of everybody, <laughs> I was also a few thousand feet higher than everybody. Nice. <laughs> and, awesome. And that, so, so that really feels good. Of course, I, right. I, squ I squandered all that advantage shortly <laughs> after. <laughs> but, <laughs> but in the moment, that really felt good. So felt pretty good, and it's, right? it's, it's, those, it's those kind of moments where, you, you know, you, you're doing something, you're doing it on your own. It's not like you're following somebody blindly, which I, I don't yeah, like to exactly. do anyway. I don't like to do anyway. But um, but uh, I, I rather I rather make my own decisions and and you know end up last. But I you know learn something from it than than to follow someone uh, down uh, down a track and not really knowing why why I'm yeah. doing what I'm doing. Absolutely. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's gratifying if you make your decisions and they turn out to be turn out to be right. That's awesome. Now this has nothing to do with Nephi, but. This, this is kind of ex exciting stuff. Did you see or hear about the upcoming FAI sanctional, sanctional uh, the International Grand Prix race that will be run on Condor's platform? Yeah, yeah, I have seen that. Uh, and it's, I think it's great that, uh, that the FAI is sanctioning a, a Condor race. So I think that's, that's really cool. Um, uh, really cool, yeah. I think there's like one pilot from each of 20 countries going head to head. It's going to be pretty awesome. I guess it's in September. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Apart from roll racing in your glider, is something like this potentially of interest to you? I mean, um, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't sign up for one of those uh, <laughs> to be one of those twenty pilots that that are that were selected. But um, you know, I probably wouldn't. I have, I have a few hundred hours in Conda, but I think the people who will win that are, are the people who've got many thousands of hours uh, of, oh, yeah, of, know, of right? Condor. And, and Condor is, I mean, Condor is, is a great tool and it is, uh, it, it has a lot of similarities with, with the real life, but to be an outstanding Condor pilot, I think you have to be an outstanding Condor pilot, not just an outstanding racing pilot. I think if you give right. Seba <laughs> Sebastian Carver on Condor, I don't think he will win against the, against the top Condor pilots. So I think there is, yeah. there's a different, a different sort of, fine-tuned skill set uh, that's required but um, I'd also say there there is to this just to this race I mean there is a there's an open event I don't know if you saw that too so there, there's an open event anyone can sign up yes. for, for that Correct. event yeah. I think uh, last time I checked there was about 200 people uh, that were signed up to to fly the same same race tasks and this is I think this is held simultaneously simultaneously with the um, the world uh, the, with the Grand Prix World Final, World Cup yeah. Final in in France, yep. uh, in two, yeah, beginning of September, yeah, as you said, uh -huh. uh, yeah. and and so I think anyone can sign up. So there's I think there's lots of time slots available, so uh, so that you can pick a time zone that that works for you. And um, so I would say anyone who's got a, who's a condo pilot and proficient. Uh, in flying condor should just sign up and do it for fun i mean i've signed up for it i, I don't think i'm gonna fly all the races because i don't have 
time for all those races, but um, right. but uh, I'm gonna fly some of those races uh, and just for fun. Yeah, good so stuff. It's definitely it's definitely fun. Clemens, thank you so much for joining me again. It's been really fun catching up with you and hearing about Nephi. Such a beautiful place to fly, and wow, what a great experience! Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, uh, and and likewise. I mean, I thank you for inviting me again and. Um, you know, this was this was one of the more memorable experiences. So flying these national contests, I think is uh, it's pretty it's pretty awesome. It's a it's a great experience. I would really encourage anyone who's got cross country experience uh, to try at least try a regional contest and see if it's for you. Um, and uh, if you don't have the cross country experience to fly a, a contest, then first get the cross country experience because it's a lot more fun to fly cross country than just fly around the airport but um it's it's a great 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 fun uh, to fly these contests and uh, you learn a lot so i just just uh, thank you jack for the podcast and for spreading the word about all this stuff so uh, i think yeah absolutely i have a great team behind me they're doing a great job and yeah we're just gonna push forward and keep getting some great soaring content out there yeah, no, it's awesome. I think the quality keeps improving and uh, your audience keeps improving and gets growing and, uh, and you're doing a great service to the community. So thank you for that. Thank you, Clemens. I will probably bug you again because I love chatting with you. I love hearing what you're doing. Uh, I will ask you to throw that plug in there for your for your blog you do because I enjoy that. But tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, anyone who anyone interested in in this type of content, right? So there's a lot more of right. this content on, on there's a there's a blog. It's called jessintheair.com uh, that you can follow, uh, and I also have a YouTube channel that is very different from the other uh, soaring YouTube channels. I, I put a lot of energy and into analyzing my own flights and understanding what it is that I did wrong and what I what it is that I did right and. Um, uh, hopefully, uh, I mean, basically the feedback I'm getting is that <clears throat> there's a lot of other people who find it um, useful. Um, I'm not, you know, telling anyone that I'm the most experienced and the most proficient contest soaring pilot or record soaring pilot, but uh, I've, I've learned a great deal over the last few years. And you can see um, uh, if you want to learn it yourself, I think this is maybe uh, a tool that uh, you might find uh, might find useful. So. You can look it up, Chasing the Air, either on, on YouTube or on uh, chasingtheair.com or on my Facebook page. Absolutely. Thank you, Clemens. I will talk to you soon. Yep. Thank you. Uh, thanks again for having me. All right. Take care. Fly safe. Yep. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. You know, our sponsors mean a lot to us, and one of those important sponsors is Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. They are number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems and your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable systems. Aerox recently introduced the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag portable oxygen system. This thing is small, lightweight, and it is super simple to use. The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for that occasional user who wants the flexibility to access those higher altitudes without having to worry about flying impaired. It's now available at Aerox Distributors and, of course, at Aerox.com. So remember our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. Hi, everyone. Sergio from Story Master here. Today we're going to talk about one of the hardest battles cross-country pilots have to fight up in the air. The mental battle before landing out. Landing out 
is a characteristic of our aerial sport. But even with all the trainings available nowadays, we still see gliders getting damaged upon outlandings due to pilots' late decision taking, regardless of their experience. Most of these situations could have been avoided if the pilot had committed to land 50 meters or 150 feet higher than he did. This delay is often spent trying to avoid the inevitable outlanding, with the pilot immersed in a rush of conflicting thoughts. The pilot is conscious that the situation is becoming marginal, but the wager softens the seriousness of the situation that only gets worse with each second that goes by. In order to avoid this, we need to understand what goes on in our minds in these moments. There are three main lines of thought that negatively influence the decision to commit to land out. The first is fear of the outcome or uncertainty with one's ability to perform an outlanding. This is more common with new cross-country pilots and usually this fear vanishes after proper training. The second line is related to our ego, making the will to achieve the original flight goal such a huge factor that it blinds the pilot from a rational analysis of the situation. With thoughts like, I will succeed, I know that I can find a thermal, let me turn just one more time. The third line of thought is related to the way we want others to perceive us. Common lines are, what are others going to think about me? Uh, is my What is my club going to think about me? Uh, I cannot allow this to happen again. Uh, what is my family going to think about this? The more experienced we are, the less vulnerable to this thought we get. Not because the mind stops generating them, but because our awareness makes us quickly identify when this mechanism has started to run in our minds. And thus it allows us to rapidly focus again on the present situation. And in this way, not letting our emotions affect our decisions. So awareness is the main weapon we have against these thoughts. Another good tip is to always ask yourself a magic question. Before taking any decision, ask yourself, am I taking a safety risk with this decision or not? When we fly, we only compete with our own limitations and winning the mental battle, particularly before an outlanding, is one of the most important victories out there. See you next episode, guys. Thank you for hanging out with us for episode 99, and that means in a couple weeks we bring you episode 100. We already have a very special guest lined up and some other fun stuff we have planned, so I hope you plan to join us. But until then, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. 
Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.